I want to especially welcome our visitors. I see a number of uh, visitors from the mainland as, lo as well as uh, some local visitors, and we want you to know we love you, and you're welcome here, and we're part of the same family, and so we count it a real privilege that uh, we're able to share this wonderful day together in serving the Lord and in worshiping Him. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation in chapter 11, and I'd like you to turn there if you would. We're going to be looking at the inaugural reign of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 15, if you recall as you're turning, last week we talked about the two witnesses, two very remarkable individuals who will stand most likely uh, in Jerusalem and witness for a period of three and a half years, much to the distress of the Antichrist, who will do everything in his power to destroy not only these two witnesses, but anyone who stands for Jesus Christ. And having completed their testimony, the seventh trumpet sounds. That's what we're going to be reading today. So if you'll um, turn with me to that passage in verse 15 of chapter 11, I'll read it, and then we'll uh, pray and study it together. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Father, once again we come to you and we are so grateful for your word, Lord. It's a remarkable thing, a, a miracle that we have the opportunity to hold it in our, in our hands, Lord, and to read its words and to know that it comes directly from your heart and your mouth. These prophecies are true and will come to pass. And Lord, I pray that every man and woman and young person, myself included, would be instructed by your words this morning. And Holy Spirit, I feel like a broken record on Sundays, but I'm so desperately in need of you, Father, that I might speak only your words. And I'm sobered once again by the knowledge that this is your flock and these are your sheep who you love so deeply. So much so that you sent your Son that he might lay his life down and empty himself and die on the cross for each one of them that they might be drawn close to your heart. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me in my effort to properly teach and to instruct. And the net result of the teaching this morning might be that every one of us, God, would be drawn, drawn closer to your heart this morning. Be glorified and magnified in and through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. A number of years ago, I was, uh, I was asked to teach in Mexico at a Baptist church and uh, the Lord took me to some texts about the kingdom that we live in the world that we live in today and in the course of talking about the world we live in today I was explaining to this, uh, uh, this Baptist church that 
that God doesn't really rule this age any longer. That the Bible says that Satan himself is the ruler of this age and that the whole world is under his control. And afterwards, I had a whole bunch of people come up to me and say, what? How could you say that? That's blasphemous. And, uh, and I listened. And they were, some of them were very aggressive. They felt like I had touched the throne of God and, and defiled it in some way by teaching that, that Satan was actually the god of this age. They just didn't know the word well enough or hadn't been taught that particular uh, uh, teaching. And, it, and it, was just, it was frightening to them to think that God wasn't in control. But the Bible does teach that Satan is the god of this age and that everything in this world is under his control. And as I explained last week, and I want to touch on again, is that this world was created by God. In fact, in in, uh, Psalm 24, we're told that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including the people and every created thing and everything that's not, uh, that doesn't even breathe, all the the, uh, rocks and hills and plains and trees, everything was created by God and belongs to Him. And yet, we find in Scripture that somewhere along the way, Satan became the God of this world. And the question is, how did that happen? And when did it happen? Well, if you were here last week, you already kind of know where I'm going with this. But the Bible says that in the Garden of Eden, man was given authority and dominion over the world. And he was to take care of it under the authority of God. And we know what happened. They chose to rebel against the Lord God and go their own direction. And the result, of course, was that they lost not only their place, but through Satan's deception, they handed over the deed to the earth, to the enemy of God. Now, we know this because in... Luke 4, in fact, I'd like you to turn there briefly. Put your finger in in Revelation, but I want you to turn to Luke 4 real quickly and look at at what I think is just a remarkable passage. Luke chapter 4. The temptation of Jesus. And I'm going to skip down. I'm I'm assuming many of you already know this text, but in verse 5, Having already tempted him, uh, he comes to him again during these 40 days in the wilderness. And, and the devil led him up, referring to Jesus Christ, to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. This is the important part. For it has been given to me. Who gave it to him? Man. God certainly didn't give it to him. But man turned it over by default. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Now thank God, literally, that Jesus Christ didn't take the bait. But instead, He redeemed the world in the only way that was truly possible by coming and dying on the cross and reconciling everything in the world men and women, young people, as well as the entire creation back to himself. And there's a redemption that took place at that point. And if you recall from our study in Revelation, the scroll represents the title deed to the earth. And in these final days, Jesus Christ will take back what belongs to him but was usurped by the enemy of God. But an interesting passage in Hebrews, because of course, if you're like me, I'm looking around and I'm saying, this certainly doesn't look like it belongs to God yet. Have you ever felt like that? 
when you see evil and wickedness take place in the world and, and some people have uh, the idea that somehow this world is going to turn into a utopia if we can all just love each other. Well, the problem is we don't have the capacity to love each other outside of the power of God. Not consistently. We can do it for short, brief periods of time in our own flesh. But to have a genuine love that transforms the world is not possible and we've seen evidence of it again and again and again. And the world continues to be corrupted by man's sin. But in Hebrews, we're told that God put everything under Him, under Jesus Christ, and left nothing that is not yet subject to Him. But listen to this passage. In this same verse, he says, Yet at present we do not see everything subject to Him. Not yet. What John is talking about in this passage, in chapter 11, is that point when the yet will become a now. And at that point, Jesus Christ will begin to reign and rule over His world. And so one day, not long from now, the final minutes and seconds on God's clock will tick by and He will finally take authority. And the prince of this world, as Scripture says in John 12:40, will be driven out. And along with the heavenly hosts in Revelation 19:6, we are going to say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And that is going to be a thrilling time. I can't wait. It is the thing I'm driving for in everything that I do in life. I am looking forward to that moment so much. If I didn't have that moment and know that that finish line would be crossed at some point, I would be discouraged. I would be like Paul and said, what's the point? If there's no resurrection, if there's no life with Christ, if there's no second coming, why bother? Because life is difficult. But God, for each and every man and woman and young person who has put their trust in Him... He loves you so much. And He's got something so wonderful planned for you. And it's waiting and He's preparing it. And He's calling you to it. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's a reminder to all of us about what's coming and what kind of men and women and young people we need to be as we await that glorious coming. In spite of the fact that God in Christ has not yet fully begun to reign on this earth, there is a reign taking place. It's a sovereign reign of God in the hearts of men and women. I'll talk about this in a, in a few moments, but, but the reign and rule and sovereignty of God, though it's not manifested yet in the entire earth, it's manifesting itself in the hearts of men and women who have believed on His name. And I can see the changes taking place in your hearts and your lives. I can, I can be fellowshipping and some of you are here for the first time and I can fellowship with you and immediately have a tremendous connection in Christ because of His rule and reign in your life. And as He rules in my life and reigns in your life and we come together, we're under the same authority and we're family. And God is honored by that. So although not yet is Christ ruling and reigning sovereignly over the entire earth, he is ruling and reigning in a kingdom of men and women who have called on His name. And you are that kingdom. The Bible tells us because of this we're to live as aliens and strangers in the world. That this world is not our world any longer. This is really not our home. The Bible says that we are sojourners. And so often I find myself, and maybe you can relate to this, uh, planting stakes down like this is my home. And I get distracted from the knowledge and the truth of the fact that God's kingdom is my home, not here. And maybe you get distracted too, and that's what the Word of God is for. It renews our mind. There's no need to kind of 
beat up on ourselves about the fact that we forget, I just say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for reminding me of what I just forgot. I've known it for 22 years, and I forgot again. Thank you. (laughs) He's so patient with us. And he says, remember whose you are. Remember who's reigning and ruling in your life, and let him be Lord. And remember what your destiny is. And remember your mission and your purpose. And make every moment count for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so John begins by teaching in verse 15 that the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. And we know these voices most likely to be uh, the, uh, uh, the angels of, of heaven along with the heavenly hosts. And at that sounding of this trumpet, it ushers in the seven bowl judgments that are coming in chapter 16 as we'll be studying that in the weeks to come. But these loud voices are proclaiming that the kingdom of the world has come and has begun to be Christ. Now again, this kingdom is the rule and realm and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. So there's, a, there's an already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. The not yet part is that he's not reigning and ruling over the entire earth yet, but he will. But the already part is the fact that he's ruling and reigning in the heart of any man or woman who will allow, allow him to lead their life. There's a great little track that changed my wife's life when she was in college over at University of Hawaii. And she was sitting at lunch and some, uh, some gals from Campus Crusade sat next to her and said, hey, can we share with you about the Lord? And she said, sure. She was a Christian but was kind of not really walking with the Lord that closely. And they pulled out this little track called The Spirit-Filled Life. Maybe some of you remember that. It's been a long time. It's <laughs> if, you've, if you've come to Christ in the last few years, you don't even know what this track is. But for those of us that have been Christians longer, there's this little track called The Spirit-Filled Life. And on it, it had three circles. Anybody remember these three circles? In one circle, uh, there was a throne in that circle representing a person's life. And on that throne was self, a big S. And Christ was outside of the circle. That person had not yet received Christ. And then the next circle had uh, uh, the throne and self on the throne, but Christ was in the life, but not ruling and reigning that person's, over that person's life. And then the third circle was the throne of the, of the individual's life, but Christ was on the throne and self was submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when, when my wife saw that, she repented right on the spot. And she recommitted her life to Christ because she knew, even as a Christian, having grown up in a Christian home, having learned learned scripture as a child and memorized verses. She couldn't go out and play until she memorized verses. I wish my parents had done that with me. Uh, But anyway, uh, she realized right away that she was not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So although God had saved her, he wasn't reigning in her life. And she recommitted her life to Christ. And possibly even today, there are some who have received Jesus, but self has crawled back up on the throne. And Christ has been dethroned and no longer ruling and reigning. You'll know because you stop asking Him for direction every day. You'll know because your fellowship with Him is, is not what it should be and your interest in His Word is, is kind of waning. And There are a number of signals that God will help you see. But most of us know when we're not allowing the Lord Jesus to really have absolute dominion over our lives, But he can have dominion today if you let him. It's a matter of surrendering yourself once again and saying, Thank you, Holy Spirit, you're so patient with me. 
and that you love me so much that you never give up on me and I renounce myself, I renounce my flesh and I once again get off the throne. Forgive me for having usurped your authority once again. Would you rule and reign in my life and have your way and let your kingdom be evident in and through my life. And so this kingdom of the world has now become Christ's. Now this event was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. It was predicted by the angel who visited Mary uh, coming up at a season that we're looking at now with Christmas time. You recall the angel said that regarding Jesus Christ, this babe born in Bethlehem, that He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and His kingdom will never, ever Ever, I can't like those evers. It'll never, ever, ever, ever end. You know what's really shocking and almost a little frightening? Is that the Bible says that for those who are faithful to Him to the end, is that you will rule and reign with Him. Unbelievable. That He would share such glory with us is just beyond imagination. But that's what the Bible says is awaiting those who belong to Him. Jesus Himself said and predicted and taught that the kingdom of God would come. In fact, He spent much time teaching parables about the coming kingdom. The kingdom on earth in the heart of a man or a woman or a young person, but also the kingdom in the world to come. In Luke 4 and Matthew 5, you see the references there. And so man, under the inspiration of Satan, has really been given his shot at governing the world. He's been given every opportunity to get this thing right. We've been going on 6,000 years plus, depending on your view of Scripture and on the length of time that man has been on earth, but a minimum of 6,000 years under the authority of God with the Word of God available to anyone who wants to read it on how His blueprint for life should be lived out. And the best we can do is what we've got. We have to have more and more and more laws to keep man in check. We've got more and more restrictions and more and more uh, legal finagling in order to keep man in check because our hearts, even at our best, are wicked. This is what Scripture teaches. And so having given it his best shot and failed miserably, now Jesus Christ will take his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords and he will show us how it's done. Thank you that he's coming. I'm so glad that he's coming. And I look forward to it. I can't wait for the moment of His appearing. And the Bible says that He will reign forever and ever. And so while the kings of this earth and world have come and gone throughout history, Jesus Christ is the only one who will have an everlasting kingdom. And we will be with Him forever and ever and ever. Now, having heard this from these loud voices, the heavenly hosts, the 24 elders are taken again. (laughs) I love these guys. I really like the 24 elders. I love their heart. I love their responses. I love what they do when they hear the heavenly hosts get excited about the Lord. This is actually the, the seventh reference that we have to these 24 elders. And it's the fourth time that we see them falling down on their faces, prostrating themselves before God and worshiping God. And actually, that's what the word worship means. It means to prostrate oneself before someone else. It means to lay flat, if you don't know what the word prostrate means. It means to lay flat on your face, stretched out before God. 
to completely humble yourself before God. And the scripture says that these 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God, they got off of their thrones and they fell on their faces and they worshipped God. That's what the word worship means. To fall on our faces before God Almighty. Now we already have reference to these 24 elders as I I said in in Revelation 4 we see them worshipping God as creator and on your own time I encourage you to go back and look at the identification and and the different aspects of the glory of Jesus Christ that they praise Him for but in Revelation 4 it's for Him as the creator. In Revelation 5, 8 they worship Him as the redeemer the one who is buying back not only the souls of men and women but the authority over the world. You remember scripture teaches that the whole world is groaning and I groan. Do you, don't, don't you groan? Don't you groan and moan sometimes with the way things go in life? And Life is challenging. I, I, I love being a Christian. I love being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit and being able to walk with Him. But I still have times of groaning where life is just a challenge. Just me, I guess. <laughs> Nobody else. We all groan. We all struggle with life. That's a part of the fallenness of this world. But our groaning will come to an end at the second coming of Christ. But they worship Him as Redeemer because the Bible says though the earth itself, the earth is groaning. The entire creation, Scripture says, is groaning under the burden of sin. And we groan as well, waiting for our Redeemer. But these 24 elders glorify Jesus Christ as being the one who is the Redeemer of the world. And they also worship Him in Revelation 7.11 as the Judge and the King of the earth. You know, I have to say that um, I've shared this before, but a number of years ago, uh, living up in, in upstate New York and doing ministry there, I read the paper. It was called uh, The Times Union. It's up in Schenectady, New York. And as I read the paper, I sometimes flipped to the religious section and and there was a picture of this pastor. And the the topic was prayer. And in the course of talking about prayer, he said that he felt that uh, the idea of kneeling and prostrating and uh, physically submitting yourself to God was kind of passe. That that was a demonstration of, of an old way of thinking about God that it was really demeaning to God Himself because He wanted a face-to-face, man-to-man relationship with us. And so this pastor was talking about the fact that he would never kneel or consider kneeling before God or prostrating himself because he felt that 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 was a, a demeaning demonstration of submission, making himself somehow less than God. And I'm going, you are less than God. What are you talking about? I'm yelling at the guy in the paper. I'm yelling at the paper. You are, you are less than God. What are you talking about? How can you even say such a thing and mislead people? And so as this article continued, he said, God has called us to a face-to-face, no-shame relationship. And, and he did have some of it right, but he, he had a lot of it wrong we do have direct access to God and we can come with boldness. But the idea that kneeling and prostrating ourselves is passe, I think is godless. And that day, I made a decision that I would make it a practice to kneel when I pray. So most of the time when I pray at home and with my boys and with my wife, we get on our knees. And so I tell you, it's a great blessing, you know, to to watch my boys when something happens it's like they're down on all fours right away and they want to pray for something you know 
And so that's what they do is they just immediately get down on all fours and, and, and they just prostrate themselves. Sometimes we stretch ourselves out and I tell you, it's just, you know, when I watch a six-year-old and a four-year-old boy, and, and believe me, these guys are not little angels, but when I watch them, you know, get down on their hands and knees and worship God and pray, oh, I just think, oh God, thank you for teaching me the importance of humbling myself and the joy of humbling myself before you. You know, some of us are, are uncomfortable with that and I have to admit I was uncomfortable too and I'll just share personally that uh, I, I did this for quite some time uh, in my home before I, I really wanted to do it in front of other people. And I had all these kinds of things going through my head and the first time I actually got on my knees in a worship service and, I, and it wasn't like, okay, today I'm going to get on my knees. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was, as we were worshiping, I felt, oh, I want to be on my knees. I want to be on my knees. And I had this mental battle in my heart as we were worshiping. Anybody ever have those little mental battles? And I had this mental battle in my heart and I said, if I get on my knees, people are going to think I'm trying to draw attention to myself. And people are going to think, what's he doing down there? What sin has he committed? <laughs> and he's so, so desperate for God, you know? But mainly I, I thought, I don't want to be a distraction and I don't want to uh, make people uncomfortable. And I'll never forget the first time I knelt. It was, I have to say, it was kind of like praying out loud for the first time. You remember when you were a new Christian, you prayed out loud, you were more worried about how you sounded than what you were saying? if you were praying in a group. And, and that's kind of what happened to me. I was a little bit more concerned. I just kept my eyes closed. I didn't want to see anybody. And I got down on my knees and I just kind of scooted out of my chair and I got down and bowed and worshipped God. I'll never forget it. It was wonderful. It was a beautiful experience. And with time, I don't care what anybody thinks anymore. And I don't, I don't just get on my knees because I feel you know, like, oh, you know, it's the fourth song. It's the worship song. It's the quiet song. No, I just, as God leads me. And sometimes I prostrate myself and, and, uh, and sometimes I, I do it here and you see me and I'm not trying to draw attention to myself, but frankly, the most exalted creations in all of heaven at this point don't seem to be uncomfortable at all with getting off their thrones, getting down on their knees and prostrating themselves before God and worshiping. And yet, I find myself in my flesh in the past, not so much anymore, but in the past, very self-conscious about doing such a thing in front of other people. You know what I'd love to see happen? I'd love to see God actually free us to worship Him. <laughs> you know, I couldn't think of anything more wonderful than to have, get all these chairs out of the way or just push them, get them out of the way and have us just kneel before God and worship Him because He deserves it. You know, maybe, maybe today's message, if you get nothing else, is a reminder of how worthy God is of our worship and how really silly it is. And I'm, I'm not pointing fingers because I was, I was doing the same silliness myself for years about being embarrassed about what people think and how honorable and how magnificent and how powerful it is for a man or a woman or a young person to slip down off their chair and off their throne of their own lives 
and prostrate themselves before the Almighty God. Better get some practice at it because the Bible says we're going to be doing it for eternity. We're going to be getting off. Every time some, some guy in the left far corner of heaven says, Praise the Lord! Bang! Everybody's going to be down. All the elders are going to be down. It's just going to be like, we're going to be, okay, time to go down. All right, you know. I think about it and sometimes I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, that's going to be, is that all we're going to be doing? No, we're going to be doing a lot more. But every time it happens, it's not going to be like, uh, oh, bummer, down on our knees again. It's going to be like, all right, a break from reigning and ruling, which is so fun anyway, but now we get to get down on our knees and worship the guy who made it all possible. And we're going to be rejoicing. And I really believe it's going to be, we were at a, oh, I was at a pastor's uh, dinner the other night uh, with the pastors on the island, a Christmas party, and somebody started off, you know, tinkling the glasses and this guy had to kiss his wife. And, you know, that's what it's going to be like. Somebody's going to worship and it's going to be like the tinkling of a glass and everyone's going to, oh, that's our cue, worship and love him. A demonstration of our passion for Jesus Christ. Now, you know, I don't know what will happen and how this will be exercised in your life and I don't want you to to foreignly or in an awkward way, you know, do something you don't feel comfortable doing. But I encourage you to begin kneeling in your home and possibly even here on Sunday morning and and begin to be a worshiper. You know, we're we're not interested in drawing attention to ourselves or to distracting other people. But if God leads you and you're worshiping in your heart and you want to demonstrate in a very physical way your submission to His authority and leadership... I encourage you to try it. You'll never, ever be the same. There's something powerful that happens when a man or woman gets down on their knees and worships their God. Now, John continues with these elders down on their knees and they begin to worship God. They begin to declare His glory by giving thanks to God who is and who was. Now, it's interesting that this is the only place in the Bible where we have who is and who was. What's missing? Does anybody know? And who is to come? What happened to who is to come? I mean, that's the big deal. Who is to come? Every time you see this, this phrase in Scripture, except for this one spot, it's always who is and who was and who is to come. But John, in this glorious vision that Jesus Christ has allowed him to understand and see for our benefit, is already there at the who is to come part. So it's just who is and who was because the is to come is a present reality for John and one day, not long from now it will also be our reality and they gave him thanks because as the text says here in verse 8 because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign now the road for the Christ reign over this world and in the lives of men and women wasn't a a glorious path it wasn't a, a path of mighty power demonstrated in armies and in uh... destruction but it was in a baby being born in Bethlehem. And uh, I'm going to be talking about that on Christmas Sunday. But Philippians tells us what God's plan was. Remarkable. I would have never thought of it. I would have never imagined such a plan. But the Bible says in Philippians 2 that being in the very nature God, in other words, He is God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but He made Himself nothing. You know, that's the calling of every believer too. Did you know that? We are to imitate Christ. He made himself nothing. We're to make ourselves nothing. Most of us spend most of our lives trying to make something great out of ourselves. Accomplishing this and doing that and racking up this account and building these things and buying those things. And, and that's, our, that's our identity. But Jesus made it his business to make himself 
nothing. And it says he took on the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. This escapes our, our understanding because we've known this story for so long. But to think that God of the universe made himself a man like a creation of his own is a phenomenal thing. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now this is the important part. That was the path. This is the result. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Interesting. Every knee should bow. Every man and woman should prostrate themselves before him in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, reigning supreme, God the Father over all of the earth to the glory of God the Father. Now we know in Revelation 19.6 that that will finally take place and as I mentioned before that all of creation and all of heaven is going to shout Hallelujah! The Lord God Almighty finally is reigning and it's going to be an incredible experience for us who love Him and are looking forward to His appearing now John goes on and says that the second thing out of three things that he's giving thanks for that the, the uh, 24 elders are thanking God for is that the nations were angry but your wrath has come. Now this is kind of an interesting phrase. You, you have to understand that during the tribulation period and really throughout the course of history but in particular during those three and a half years of difficulty that the Bible says are going to be unlike any in human history that during that time these unbelievers, men and women who refuse to prostrate themselves before God, who refuse to allow Christ to be the center of their life and to be on the throne of their life, they will hate anything that's related to God. Why? Because God is going to be punishing the world at that point for its sins. But as I said before, even in His judgment, He's redemptive. The reason we know that is because He doesn't just whack everybody all at once. But there's a gradual build-up. Why? So that men and women can see the power of God and have an opportunity still, even in the tribulation, to turn to Him. And how fortunate are those of us who have already received Him by His grace and mercy and by His calling that we don't have to face those times. But because of the punishment and the judgment of God against the world, the world will shake their fist at God and anyone connected to Him they are going to hate with a vengeance the two witnesses who are representing God. They will hate with a vengeance the tribulation converts who will come to Christ as a result of the 144,000 Messianic Jews who will be preaching powerfully the Word of God. And most of all, they will hate God. And so the world will be stubborn and rebellious to the very end and nations will willfully yield themselves to the enemy of God, Satan himself. Now this word anger that's used, the world's anger, is wicked and impotent, but this word actually means to become provoked, enraged, or exasperated. It just is like a, it's just a total frustration and, and lashing out at God because of what's happening. Now flip over, if you would, just briefly to Psalm. Hold your finger in, in Revelation, but flip over to Psalm 2. And this Psalm is a prophecy of these last days. It's a very powerful psalm. I'm just going to go through it quickly. You might want to take some time to read it on your own. But in Psalm 2, the psalmist says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? And of course they're plotting and conspiring against God. 
The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one, referring to Jesus Christ. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. In other words, we don't want to be bound by anything that God has to say. We will choose our own path. We will live our own life. We are God. The one enthroned in heaven, in response, laughs. And it's not a, it's not a, a laugh of derision. It's just like, you've got to be kidding. You puny little creation want to be God and want to raise yourself up. You can't even, you don't even know how many days you've got left. You can't even turn one hair white or black. You can't even control the circumstances in your own life and you want to be God. This is humorous. It really is quite funny if it weren't so sad. The Lord scoffs at them and then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The installation, the inaugural reign of Jesus Christ. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, referring to Christ. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will give the nations, uh, make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So what once was usurped and stolen away by the enemy of God has been purchased again and God will give it and surrender it and deliver it to Jesus Christ. And you will rule them with an iron scepter and this is referring to the millennial reign of Christ and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, and this is the encouragement to us, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you will be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That is a psalm and a prophecy about the end times. And so man's anger will lash out against God and they will plot in vain and and the Antichrist himself will lead that charge of somehow trying to dethrone God. And uh, you know... Even though Satan knows the Bible, there's no question that he's fully aware of Scripture and the prophecies, I don't believe that he actually thinks that he's defeated. I really don't think he's defeated. I think he still thinks by some fortuitous coming together of circumstances and his strategy that he will dethrone God and he will win in the end. But God says that that is not going to happen because God's anger in response to the anger of man is holy and omnipotent. And the anger that the Greek word uses here is a justifiable indignation and wrath against the, the, uh, the flailing of man in rebellion against God. Now John goes on and he says that the time has come in, uh, in verse 18 for judging the dead and for rewarding the servants of the prophets uh, the servants of the prophets and your saints and those who re- reverence your name both small and great and this word time is interesting there are two words in the Greek for time actually there are three but the two that I'll mention one is chronos uh, chronos has to do with a period of time or just like a time in general the concept of time but that's not the word that John uses here the word that he uses is kairos which is a set, set or fixed moment in time, a proper moment in time. And so John is saying at a fixed and proper moment in time, God will judge the dead. It means that he is going to try and punish the dead. This is referring to the great white throne judgment that's referred to in Revelation 20, uh, verses 11 through 15. And you can read that on your own if you'd like. But what it refers to is a time at the very end, at the second coming of Christ, when God will open up the books, plural books, there's a book in heaven 
What's the book? Anybody know? The book of life. Where are the, the names of those who have believed on Jesus Christ have been recorded. But in this judgment, God will open the books, plural. And men and women and young people will have to stand before the throne of God and they are going to have to answer essentially one question. What did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? And those that have faced and will face that great white throne will all have to say, eventually, after some hemming and hawing and some explanations and some excuses, that I didn't do anything with him. I really didn't believe all this was true. I didn't really think it was going to happen. I thought it was all just a, a myth. I thought, I thought the scriptures weren't reliable. I thought that... I, I, I and the judgment will come and that man or that woman will be accountable for every single sin that they've ever committed throughout their entire life. And every one of those sins will be recorded in the books before God. And so God will judge and these 24 elders are declaring that that time for judgment is coming. So if a person has rejected Jesus Christ and aligned themselves, maybe even by default, not thinking, oh, I want to be on Satan's team, but by default you already are if you don't know Christ. If you haven't made that decision to turn your life over to Jesus Christ, by default you already are in His camp. There are only two camps. You're either under the rule and reign of Satan or you're under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. You can't be in both places. And the transition and the transfer takes place only when a man or a woman is willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ, is willing to believe in Him and receive Him as Lord and Savior, and the Lord and Savior part is important. I know some people that said, well, I prayed the prayer a long time ago. Isn't that good enough? And they're sleeping around and there's no evidence of God really working in their life. You know, there's no hunger for God. There's no worship. There's no a sense of the rule and reign of God taking place in their life. And, and yet they still think by just having kind of uh, mouthed some prayer that that is salvation. That's not salvation. Salvation is when we fully give ourselves to God and to His rule and reign and we submit ourselves to His Lordship from that point on. Maybe not perfectly the whole way, but increasingly so, He rules and reigns in our life. But for those that refuse and reject they unknowingly or knowingly will have aligned themselves with Satan. Now, there are certain consequences in life, and I was reminded of that yesterday. Choices and decisions we make do have consequences. Everybody probably... It's not uh, a, a wildly new thought. Sometimes it surprises us, though, doesn't it? <laughs> we make a bad decision, it's like, oh, bad, that's bad. I didn't expect that bad thing to happen just because I did something, you know, dumb and stupid and bad and against God's will. But my son yesterday taught me in a very childlike way about the consequences of stupid choices. He was out. We have uh, these, uh, these plants out in our, in our yard where we recently landscaped. And, and these flowers draw the honeybees. And so you can hear when you go out there, you can hear all the honeybees on these flowers. And my, my son Michael loves bugs. He just loves bugs. And so very proudly, he was catching honeybees in his hand and cupping them like this and was saying, look, look, and he would let one go and catch another one. I wasn't there. But my wife was there and she said, don't do that, honey, or you're going to get stung. Oh, no, 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 they're not going to sting me. It took him the fourth time. On the fourth time, he was squeezing this thing even tighter and tighter and kind of squishing this thing and it did sting him. 
well, all of a sudden he was just shocked. He couldn't believe it. He didn't cry at first because he was just so shocked. He couldn't believe that this honeybee had the courage and the, the gall to sting him. How wrong of that honeybee. And of course the tears set in and we talked to him about, you know, honeybees and the choices that, that he made and the consequences. And some people in their rebellion against God or in their in their thinking, well, maybe this isn't all really true and maybe this is, you know, maybe this is just a maybe this is all really going on just in your mind, Bob, and you somehow convinced yourself of all this stuff. And they've got God like this. And they, they think they've got God like this. And they're shaking him around and saying, Look who I've got, you know. You know, and all of a sudden, in the end times, they'll be stung. And there's going to be a, a tremendous shock that's going to take place, but at that point it'll be too late. And so there are consequences to sin. Satan himself will be punished and all those who have aligned themselves with Satan will receive the same punishment. Maybe not the same degree because the Bible does say that we will be, uh, there will be different degrees of punishment but nonetheless they will suffer the same fate. And you know the fearful thing is, is that many people don't realize this truth. And many teachers and pastors, in fact, churches don't even talk about hell anymore or about sin and the penalty. But the fact is, is that Jesus talked about it frequently. And my encouragement to you is that you be a man or woman who knows the Word of God and that you're not uh, in your hand shaking the purposes and the end will of God thinking you've got this whole thing by the tail and all of a sudden find yourself stung by the wrath of God. Now, John goes on and says that not only has the time come for judging uh, uh, the unbelievers, but also for rewarding the saints. This word reward means to pay for services, whether good or bad. Now we know from Scripture that, uh, that in Revelation 22, that behold, I am coming soon. This is the second coming of Christ. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. This is called the Bema Seat Judgment. This is different than the Great White Throne. The Great White Throne will be judging strictly unbelievers based on their uh, reception or rejection of Jesus Christ. But this is the Bema Seat. These are men and women who have received Christ. And you know what the good news Can I tell you some really excellent, excellent news? Is that you are not going to be held accountable or judged for any of your sin. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but I look at my sin and I'm thinking, wow, thank you, thank you for doing that for me. I can't believe it. All washed clean. All washed clean. The Bible says that He has made us as white as snow. So the judgment that comes in these final days for us, for the believers, will not be a judgment of of the evil that we've done, but it will be based on solely the book of life. And God is going to bring out His book of life and He's going to go down the list and say, Oh, Mary, welcome to the kingdom of God. Your name is written in the book of life. Come into the joy of your salvation. I've been waiting for you. I've loved you from the beginning. And I prepared a great place for you. John, your name is in the book of life. Come in. I've been waiting for you. You know, I've been serving and waiting and encouraging and interceding and praying for you and orchestrating your life for this very moment. Welcome home. That's what's awaiting you if you believe in Jesus Christ. But the Bible also says that we will be judged for the works that we've done. This is separate from salvation. We will be in the kingdom of God, but God will judge us based on how we've done, how, how reliable we've been with the talents, so to speak, that God has given us. And every one of us have been given different things. Now, uh, Paul warns us and he says, 
in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 that if a man builds on this foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because that day will bring it to light. Why? Because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he uh, has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss and he himself will be saved. But only as one escaping through the flames. So what Paul is saying is that yes, if you believed on Christ and yes, if he's the sovereign Lord of your life, you will be in the kingdom of God. You can be absolutely certain of that. You don't have to hope. You don't have to kind of weigh your good against the bad or hope your karma's right or anything like that. It's strictly based on Jesus Christ, his gift, and your reception of that gift. But God, this is so important for the church to hear, but God will judge how you have used the gifts and resources he's given you having received Christ. And a fire is going to be in heaven. I don't know exactly how that's going to take place, but everything you've ever done will be set on that, on that fire, on those logs, and it will be tested. And you know, that's a scary thing. I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says that many of our good works, even if they could have been gold and silver and precious stone, became wood and fire. Why? Because our motives were wrong. Have you ever done something to be seen? You know, you did some good deed and it was like, hope somebody sees this. You know, you would never say it out loud, but inside you're going, good, at least one person saw it. This is Kauai. Everyone's going to hear about it shortly. You know? <laughs> Aren't you kind of like that sometimes? You, that's a, that's, a, that's a, a work that won't survive because God won't honor that. The kind of works that God will survive are the ones that are done in secret and for His glory and for His pleasure, not for your... Uh, for your praise or worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with encouraging each other with, with the gifts that we've got, but God judges the motive and, motives and, and intents of the heart. So I know that many of the things that I've done in my Christian life, though they were good and may even be seen by others as admirable, will go up in smoke because my motives were impure and my desire was self-exaltation instead of exalting Jesus Christ alone. So it's so important that we as men and women are doing those things that honor God and that we are doing it with the right motive. Not to be seen by others or to be puffed up or to pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, you're really making progress, Bob. Way to go, man. No, but we are humbly saying after all is done, we've only done what was required of us, of our Savior. And so the believers will receive the rewards and and we have a, a whole list of what those rewards are. Crowns of gold and we're going to reign with Christ and we're going to rule over the earth. But you want to hear something really amazing? It, it shocked me. It rocked me. Back on my heels just a few days ago when I was up at Coquet, I was reading in Genesis chapter 15, verse 10. And I don't have time to go into the details of this, but this is Abraham being, Abram being blessed by God. And you know what God says as a result of Abraham's or Abram's faithfulness and surrender and trust and faith in God, do you know what he says? He says to him, I am your very great reward. You know why that kind of rocked me? Because I'm like type A all through and through. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm aiming at the reward of God. I want to please him, but I also, I also want to do things that honor him. I want to have as many crowns as I can because when I prostrate myself, the Bible says I'm going to be able to throw those before God and I want to have as many of those as I can. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, and this is just a, a very fine line of distinction. But what shocked me is that he is my reward. 
And all of a sudden I realized I, I'm too goal-oriented and I need to be more relationship-oriented with God. He is the reward. He is the ultimate goal. And maybe you can relate to that. Don't you sometimes find yourself trying to do the right things but not because He is everything? That He is the objective, that He is the motivation, that, that He and His glory is everything and all that matters? Well, when I read that, I had to get down on my knees and repent and ask God to forgive me and to give me a heart that wanted nothing more than His glory and that He would be my reward. It's amazing how the Word of God clarifies priorities and helps me and you to get back on track. Now, I'll have to go through the rest of this very briefly. John goes on and says that he will destroy those who destroy the earth. And he's not talking about people who throw trash down and drive SUVs and create pollution. Now, I have to say at the same time that God does mandate man to take good care of the earth. And I think we've done a poor job of that. And I think uh, it's, uh, you know, when I drive down the road and I see people throw cigarette butts out their window or paper or trash, I just go, how can you do that? I even see uh, people taking their dogs down to the beach and, and letting them do their business on the beach and just walk away. And these are local residents. I'm going, how can you, how can you do that? I, I just can't imagine that. But that's not what God is talking about. That's not His primary concern. His primary concern is the pollution of sin. It's the pollution of sin that has corrupted and ruined His world. And... Ultimately, it's the pollution and corruption of his temple, which he says is now us. You are the temple of God, and the Bible says that he doesn't want his temple corrupted or polluted. And so I encourage you to be a man or a woman who turns away from sin and allows the work of God to not be polluted or corrupted. But God will destroy those who have polluted and corrupted not only themselves, but others around them. And then finally, in closing, John says that God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple he was, uh, was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. And I wish I had a little more time, but this opening of the temple of God is significant because it points back to a time in Exodus with the people of Israel where there was a three foot thick curtain that separated the people of God from God himself from that inner sanctuary from the presence of God they could not come directly into his presence because they were unholy because of sin and he is holy and cannot fellowship with sin and the net result was that man was excluded and a high priest only once a year could go in the presence of God and that with much fanfare and, 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 and uh, ceremonial washing and he would go and make sacrifice for the nation of Israel. But the Bible says that at the moment Jesus Christ gave up his spirit, no one took it from him, he gave it up at that moment having completed his work. At that very moment the Bible says in the temple of God the curtain was ripped from top to bottom signifying that now we have access to God. We don't need a priest. You don't need a father. You don't need someone mediating for you between yourself and God. But now, by God's grace and the sacrifice of Jesus, we can go directly into the throne room of God. And that's what John is talking about here. All of a sudden, with the reign of Christ, that inner sanctum, that temple, that presence of God, is now wide open for any man or woman to come in and experience that fellowship that once was had in the Garden of Eden. Now, there are cosmic disruptions that follow, and, and we've talked about these before, but I, I find it interesting. If you recall, the last thing that we know about 
the geo, I mean, the, uh, the atmospheric uh, conditions is that there was a drought that was going on for three and a half years that was, that was uh, uh, pr- prophesied and brought to pass by the two witnesses. And now all of a sudden there's this tremendous drought and actually the Middle East right now is going through a drought. Maybe some of you have read the articles that all the Muslim nations are, are getting together and they're all praying uh, uh, for these drought conditions that they're suffering under. But the people of the world will be praying to their gods, their false gods for rain and instead of a drought it will finally be broken by an incredible hailstorm that will kill and maim and destroy the earth again. Now, this brings us to the, to the close of chapter 11. Uh, as we go through chapter 12, we're going to see some phenomenal things uh, that are ahead uh, for this world. But I want to close by encouraging you and saying that every man and every woman has to make a choice. And our choices have consequences. I encourage you to choose Christ. And possibly today you have uh, put yourself back on the throne. Possibly when you really evaluate your life, God isn't really ruling and reigning your life. He's in your life and you visit Him every once in a while. But some time ago, the fire went out and you got distracted by the world and you were entangled by sin and, and He's no longer on the throne. And before we take communion today, could I encourage you to allow Christ to rule and reign in your life again? In fact, I just want you to bow your heads just for a moment. And without any kind of uh, lengthy invitation here, so don't expect me to go through three rounds of inviting you. I'm going to invite you once, and all I'm asking you to do is to raise your hand if, if you want Christ to rule and reign in your life. You're a Christian, but you have been on the throne and you know it. And the Holy Spirit has convicted you of that even during this message. I just want you to raise your hand right now and say, God, I want to have you back on the throne. I see a lot of hands. Many hands going up. You're saying to Him, I now submit myself to you. In fact, let's pray that together. I now submit myself to you. And I give back what rightfully belongs to you. You purchased me at a price. My life is no longer my own. Forgive me for usurping your throne. Take your rightful place once again in my life my Savior and my God. Is there anyone who has never committed themselves to Christ, who has never made that remarkable transition, has never experienced crossing that bridge of Jesus Christ and His cross into a new and fabulous, forgiven, intimate relationship with God the Father? If you want that today, I just want you to raise your hands. Anyone wants that today, I'd like you to raise your hands just very briefly. I'm just going to give the invitation once. Okay. Father, we thank you for this time today and we give you glory and praise and we acknowledge your Lordship in our life. Magnify yourself in and through us and we look forward to that great and glorious day when we will be able to say with the heavenly host, Hallelujah! For our Lord God, the Almighty God and King of Kings of all creation reigns in Jesus' name.